Good morning, everybody. It's good to have you here with us today. Christmas is upon us. Uh, You can tell the decorations are out, singing some more Christmas-themed songs. There's a lot of good memories associated with Christmas, typically. But I don't know about you, but the things that tend to stick out in my mind more profoundly are actually kind of the messy Christmases that I've had in my life. And I never realized how many messed up Christmases I've had so far until I sat down to write this sermon and went, wow, why do I like this holiday so much? Um, There was the year that Christmas was messy because of backed up toilets. That was a very messy Christmas. Uh, There was the year that Mima's dog died and she cried the whole time. That was a messy Christmas. Uh, One year Christmas was messy because we spent the whole day in the hospital lobby. Uh, One one year Christmas was messy uh, because of kind of a fresh and angry divorce. That made for a very uncomfortable day. Uh, Another year, with a different side of the family, there was a very fresh and tearful divorce that kind of put a damper on the day. There was the year we all got COVID. There was the year I was sick on the couch the whole day. That was like last year, I think. Uh, But probably the messiest and least favorite Christmas of mine was the year we buried my grandfather. And technically, that was Christmas Eve. It wasn't Christmas Day, but, you know, it's 24 hours. I remember that day very clearly. We had the funeral, and we went to the cemetery, and it was almost kind of picturesque, like a snowfall had just kind of dusted over the cemetery. Um, And I remember the graveside, I don't remember anything that was said, but I remember the military rites, and the 21-gun salutes, and the folding of the flag, and presenting that to my grandmother. I remember her face during that. That's the part that got me, that part. Uh, If you've ever seen that, it's a very moving tribute. Um, Yeah, it was just, it was a a weird Christmas. And then we were done and everybody left. And my family and I, we all got in our cars and we went to go eat and then we exchanged gifts. And it was just kind of not the same, you know? There's kind of this funk that hung over what should have been a time of celebration and gift giving and merriment and enjoying one another. It was just a messy Christmas. And I think you've probably had a situation like that before. Even if it wasn't Christmas, there was some season of your life, some occasion that was supposed to be a good thing, a time of celebration and joy and and whatnot. And then something happened that just sort of, well, it kind of made a mess of everything. That happens in life. And in the really serious messes, we oftentimes say to ourselves, at least we have our faith. And that's supposed to be a comfort to us and an encouragement to us. But what do we mean by that? Like, what do we actually put our faith in that brings us so much comfort and confidence when life seems messiest? For some of us, the answer to that question may seem kind of obvious, and I'm glad if it is obvious. But what I've discovered in ministry up to this point is there are a surprising number of Christians, some have been in the faith longer than I've been alive, who still don't really know what our faith is in, or at least can't articulate it, and really don't know why we have so much confidence and hope and comfort in those messy seasons. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. It's really not too dissimilar from a situation that Jesus finds himself in in our passage this morning. We're going to continue our series of a year-ish with Jesus, and today we're looking at the book of Matthew chapter 22. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles and follow along, 
invite you to do so, but honestly, we're going to be there. We're going to be in the Old Testament a little bit. We're going to be in the New Testament in a different place a little bit. It might be more beneficial to just follow along on the screen behind or download the FCC Monmouth app to your mobile device and tap that Sunday button in the bottom right-hand corner where our sermon notes tool has everything already pulled up, ready for you to follow along with and, and take some notes on. So like I said, we're talking about those seasons where life is messy and we lean on our faith. What do we actually believe in and why is that such an encouragement and a comfort to us? As I said, Jesus found himself in a conversation with a group of people who really didn't understand that faith that they had and really couldn't draw a lot of comfort from it. And so I'm, I'm thankful that we're reading this passage today because I think it has a lot to say to you and I when we're entering into a season of life that might be potentially messy, maybe because of Christmas and everything attached to that, or maybe just because of the general state of the world today. I don't know. In any case, we're going to be looking at Matthew 22. So let's look together at verse uh, 23, and let's read this kind of unusual conversation that Jesus has. We'll break that down, and then we'll talk about how it matters to us in a little bit. It says, That same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. That's the weird part. We'll get to that. Don't worry. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. Same thing happened to the second and the third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven? since all of them were married to her. What a weird question, right? So let's break this down. Let's start with who these guys are, the Sadducees. Truth be told, we don't know a whole lot about them. And there's a reason for that we'll get into in just a minute. What we do know about them is that they tended to be kind of part of the aristocracy, so they were doing good for themselves in life. They were kind of the big wigs. They were small in number compared to like the Pharisees or some of the other movements. Probably the the clearest thing that we understand about them is their theology. They didn't believe that any of the biblical books of the Old Testament were inspired or authoritative with the exception of the Torah or the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Outside of that, Old Testament had no authority for them. Well, if you read through those first five books, They're all about God kind of selecting Israel and making them his people and establishing a covenant with them and explaining this is how you are to live for me and honor me. There's not a whole lot of page space, honestly, to get into what happens when you die. That was just sort of beyond the scope of those five books. So as a result, the Sadducees didn't believe in any sort of afterlife at all. Like they believed when you're dead, you, you were just dead. That was it. So obviously, they didn't believe in this doctrine called the resurrection. And the resurrection basically is this biblical view. It is found in the Old Testament, but it gets clarified a whole lot more in the New Testament. It's the belief that when history is done, when time has run its course, all of mankind, the righteous and the unrighteous, everybody in between, will all be raised back to life physically And we will stand before God in judgment, some to everlasting joy and some to everlasting shame. That's basically the doctrine of the resurrection in a nutshell. Well, they didn't believe this. 
But they go to Jesus, who did believe in the resurrection of the dead. And if you know the gospel story, he had very good reason for believing in the resurrection. But they go to Jesus with this really unusual question about a man who married a wife, but he died, so his brothers had to step in, which we hear that and say, ew, right? But here's the thing. This comes from a passage in the book of Leviticus. And the biblical teaching in Leviticus was if a man married a woman and he died without producing an heir, it was the responsibility of his next of kin, usually a brother, it could be a cousin, to step in to marry the widow and to produce an heir on behalf of the deceased husband. Again, sounds real weird, but there was good reason for it. We need to remember that back in ancient, ancient history, you know, early days of civilization, there was no 401k plan. There was no IRA. The only retirement vehicle that women had in the ancient world were the KIDS plan. And, and when they got old, it was the responsibility of their children, primarily their sons, to care for their aging mother. So this made sure she had some sort of livelihood in her older years so that she wasn't left destitute. And this also kept family land in the family, which again sounds kind of materialistic, but we need to remember that this land was your heritage and your identity. It was your home. It was your grocery store. It was your primary, if only, source of livelihood. To have land was to live. So it was important that this stayed in the family. And so this weird rule accomplished all of that. So anyway, the Sadducees, they go to Jesus with this ridiculous scenario where a man marries a woman, he dies without producing a son, so this, his brother steps in, he dies without producing a son. This goes through seven brothers, no kids. And at this point, I think we got to say, let's interview this woman, because something's not adding up, right? But that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is this ridiculous scenario unfolds, and they go to Jesus, and they say, hey, at this supposed resurrection, whose wife will she be, Jesus? Because she married all of them. And they're not sincere in this question. Remember, they don't even believe this is going to happen. This is supposed to be a gotcha kind of a moment where they outsmart Jesus with this trick question. It's one of those dumb things like people today ask, if God is all-powerful, could he make a rock so big that he can't pick it up? Because if he can't make the rock, he's not all-powerful. And if he can't pick it up, he's not all-powerful. Gotcha, right? No, that's just a stupid question. Like, this is what this is. And so here's Jesus' response. And here's the part where we're going to dig in and start to make some applications for our life. This is verse 29. Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Two criticisms we're going to get back to. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. It will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, you've not read what God said to you. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teachings. So Jesus makes two accusations. You guys don't understand the ways of God, and you don't understand Scripture. And he starts with the ways of God. He says, at the resurrection, you're not going to be married, and we're not going to give people in marriage. You're going to be like the angels. And the marriage thing, we're going to talk about in more depth in a little bit, because we probably hear that some of us go, that makes me nervous. We're going to talk about that. But when he says, we will be like the angels, I want to clarify. Jesus is not saying we're going to become angels when we die. Angelic beings are totally different creatures from human beings. 
We do not become one or the other. Like maybe Looney Tunes, you saw when Wile E. Coyote fell off the mountain, he you know, had that white moo-moo with the halo, and he was an angel. It's not what happens. Totally different beings. Cats don't become dogs. Dogs don't become cats. People don't become angels and vice versa. Rather, what Jesus is saying is that we will not be yoked together in marriage. Angels, we have no biblical record of any angelic beings being yoked together in marriage. And actually, there seems to be some sort of Jewish oral tradition that we don't have access to. Um, it does show up in writings about a few hundred years after this in something called the Babylonian Talmud that talks about angelic beings not being married. Oddly enough, demons, it, we will get into that later. But anyway, it was weird. But this seems to be some background belief circulating in that culture. Angels don't get married. And so Jesus is just saying we won't be married at the resurrection. And then he levels a criticism. He says, you guys don't understand scripture either. And he quotes a phrase that shows up all over the place in Exodus and in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy. I am, not I was, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God talks about these patriarchs who were long since dead when those words were spoken as if they're still around in the present tense. And he's just insinuating, look, even in the earliest days of Scripture that even the Sadducees believed, there's these implications that the grave is not the end of the story. And he just levels these criticisms against these Sadducees who didn't really have any response, which is why the crowds were amazed. They didn't understand God's power, they didn't understand his ways, and they didn't understand his Scripture. And it probably wouldn't be surprising to you and I to hear that within 40 years of this incident that we read out in Matthew, the Sadducees completely disappear from history. The year 70 AD hits, great tragedy strikes Israel, and the Sadducees have nothing to offer. They have no hope. They have no comfort. They have no encouragement because they don't understand God's word or God's ways. It's not surprising that a movement like that would disappear. And honestly, that's my concern as a pastor because a lot of times, as I said earlier, we have a lot of Christian people who, who don't necessarily understand what Scripture has to say about our faith and what we actually believe and don't actually understand why we have such great comfort, these powerful works of God, and we unintentionally wind up with a, a faith that resembles the Sadducees, one that really doesn't have a whole lot of comfort and hope to offer when push comes to shove. Those criticisms that Jesus levied, we, we need to be mindful of those. He told the Sadducees, you don't understand the Scriptures, and sometimes neither do we, in that we really don't understand the scriptural scope of the gospel and just how huge it really is. As we said, the Sadducees, they, they didn't believe in an afterlife, so all of their attention was on the here and the now and what happened in the immediate present life. And sometimes we can kind of make that same mistake. And we can assume that my faith is supposed to address everything that happens right here, right now, in the immediate. And it's supposed to soothe my immediate aches and pains and problems in this life. Now, if we were asked, do you think that's what the Christian faith is really about? A lot of us would probably say, no, it's not about the here and the now. But practically, how we live this faith, many times we fall into this trap. We can look at our prayer life as a great example. How much of our prayer life is consumed with the immediate trials and problems of right now? God, I've got this illness in my life, or somebody I care about has this illness. I need, I need you to heal this. 
God, there's this relationship problem in my life. This relationship is frayed and falling apart. I need you to fix it today. God, I got this financial stress in my life. I really need you to provide for this right here, right now. It's all about now and our immediate problems. And I don't want to confuse. God invites us to cast our concerns and our cares upon Him. It's not wrong to pray about immediate things. But sometimes we can fall into this trap of assuming this is God's main priority right here, right now. I have people come to me all the time who say, why won't God fix this? I pray about it. I read in the Bible that He can do miracles. I believe He can. I read in the Bible that He answers prayers. And yet I pray and I pray and And nothing happens. Why won't he fix this? Have we ever prayed like that? Had that feeling before? I'd be shocked if we didn't. I think we all have been in that situation, that scenario before. And we can become convinced that, you know, if God really loves me the way that I read about, he would operate right here, right now, and fix my immediate pains and problems in this life. I don't know if anybody's been through physical therapy before. It's not a pleasant experience. You know, you basically go to a clinic or to an office and people force your body to do exercises it does not want to do. And it hurts. It kind of feels like they just spend a half hour beating you up. And then your therapist has the audacity when it's all done to smile at you and say, see you next time. And you just want to say, no. You won't. I'm never coming back to this torture chamber again. We don't want to go to therapy because it hurts. And it's tempting to quit. And that immediate pain is so sharp and it's so unpleasant. All we really want is for it to stop. But do you know why we don't quit? Because we want something more than just relief of present pain. What we really want is to be healed. We want a solution. If I go have my shoulder operated on, therapy is going to hurt. But what's more important than escaping that immediate pain is being able to use my shoulder again. That's the greater outcome. And so you and I, we, we deal with the present pain, pushing through confident that real healing will result because of this. And in much the same way, when we go through the pains of life, we experience the brokenness that sin causes in this world, and it hurts. It hurts in relational contexts. It hurts physically when we deal with illnesses and injury, when we watch people we care about struggle and suffer. It hurts financially when when life just throws us a curveball and everything seems like it's falling apart. And we pray and we pray and we ask and we ask, and when it doesn't get fixed, when that immediate pain doesn't go away, it's tempting sometimes to think, God, where are you? What are you doing? And we need to remember when life is a mess, when that marriage sours and those kids turn their back, when you're at a funeral on Christmas, when life sours, it's important to remember God is not satisfied with handing out Band-Aids. He is not content to simply soothe the aches caused by a broken world. God's agenda, his primary purpose, is to heal. To truly deal with the disease responsible for all of life's messes and heartaches. Not just to soothe the aches caused by sin in a broken world, but to fix sin entirely. To cure us and purge his creation of this corruption entirely. And to offer us a new world. 
And he actually talks about this at great length. Starts in the old days, in the Old Testament. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 65, verse 17, he says, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. And then he spends a rather lengthy chapter describing this new creation as a place of peace and as a place of security and as a place of provision and as a place of abundance and just describing the goodness of this new world he is laboring to create through all of his efforts and all of his intentions. And that's actually what we want more than the immediate soothing and treatment of aches and pains. What we want is healing. And here's the good news of the gospel. We don't have to wait till someday to start to experience this new creation and this healing. Because of the work of Jesus, we actually get to be a part of this immediately, right now. And the Apostle Paul talks about this, the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 17. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation, that thing that God has been talking about since the days of Isaiah, this grand plan that he has always been wanting to accomplish and move forward, if anyone is in Jesus Christ, he is a new creation. A new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. It starts now. It starts right here. As God starts to not just heal the aches and pains of sin in our hearts and our souls, but to begin to cure us and purge us of that corruption. It starts with forgiveness. The guilt of sin, which is rebellion, which is the reason why this whole world is out of whack and why it hurts and why we have the aches and the pains. We've participated in that. And the guilt of that is purged through the work of Jesus. And the relationship that was fractured when we told God to shove it, we'll do it our own way, is healed. And we are reconciled with Him. And over the course of our lives, the Holy Spirit works in us, teaching us to forget the old ways of sin, the ways of brokenness, the ways that perpetuate the aches and the pains, not only in our lives, but in the lives of everybody around us. He teaches us to forget those and to embrace a new way, a way of righteousness, a way of godliness. And we slowly become a new kind of people, a heavenly kind of people inwardly, right here, right now. And all of this culminates in that doctrine we talked about earlier called the resurrection. When his work is completed and God presents to us a body that can finally keep up with the work he's been doing inwardly this whole time. A body that is not subject to the curse and the aches and the pains of sin, that does not run out, that does not fail, that does not fall short, that does not grow weary. We can look at Jesus at his resurrection, resurrected in a way that he is perfected and complete. That's what we have to look forward to. You might think about it in terms of, of movies. Um, if you've ever seen Captain America, it's a Marvel movie. If you're familiar with the character of Captain America, it's Steve Rogers. And Steve Rogers, at the beginning of his journey, is just this frail, weak, sickly young man. I could have just put my own picture on the left over, or on the, this side over here. He's just kind of skinny and scrawny, and he wants to join the war. He wants to fight the Nazis. He wants to be a hero. He wants to serve his country, right? 
He has all the intentions and the inwardness, the inward character of a real hero. I mean, in fact, inwardly, he's everything you would want a hero to be. He's honest. He is true. He is brave. He is unswerving. He is stalwart. He has integrity. That's everything you would want, but his body just cannot keep up. So he's never admitted into the service. And then he undergoes this experiment where they put him in this iron casket and they shoot him full of all this magic comic book juice or whatever. And when he emerges, put that picture back up there. When he emerges, he does so, that guy. He's jacked. And he's strong and he's fast and he's agile and he doesn't get sick. And, you know, he's just outwardly everything you would want a hero to be, right? He's got like the pecs and the biceps. He looks like a hero, finally. But the only thing has happened is that now his outward body finally matches what has always been inside. And that's kind of the doctrine of the resurrection. God is working in us even today through the Holy Spirit, creating us into these heavenly kind of people that live for him and walk for him and love like he does. And then when this plan finds its completion, he will give us a body that matches what he's already been doing this whole time. And that's why we have confidence and hope. Even when life is a mess, we know that God is at work. And not just in ways that give us immediate relief, but in ways that finally fix the problem. Not in ways that just make a broken world a little less broken, but in ways that make the world new. The best is yet to come. It'd be great if things worked out well and I didn't have to deal with the problems of today, but I'm still going to have bigger issues. I'm still going to have the curse of sin hanging over my head. I'm still going to have sin working in my heart, leading me down dark paths. I'm still going to have sin breaking my relationships and causing a muck in so many different ways. But the best, the best really is on the horizon, church. That's our confidence and our hope that God will not fail. If you need evidence, just look at how he has grown you and shaped you even to this point. You are the testimony of his work and his truthfulness as he changes your heart from death to life, from sin to righteousness. Now, sometimes we hear this and we may think, well, yeah, that's great. But it's almost a little disappointing. Almost as if this kind of new creation, resurrection life is a consolation prize. I mean, yeah, that's good, but I'd really like it if God just kind of solved my problems today and fixed my hurts immediately. And when that's our attitude, we imitate this other attitude of the Sadducees that Jesus criticized. We don't understand the power of God. More specifically, we don't understand the goodness of this powerful work of new creation and resurrection. As I said, it'd be great if like our problems got fixed. My shoulder makes a really weird popping sound. That uh, comment about needing shoulder surgery, that's probably a not too distant reality for me. And it would be great if I woke up one morning and it didn't make this disgusting popping sound every day. And it would be great if I woke up and like I was just a more patient dad and I wasn't frustrated all the time. That would be fantastic. People would love that. And it would be great if I woke up and, and my family drama was just solved and everybody got along and was happy. All of that would be great if my immediate problems and my immediate pains were just fixed. But there's a, an issue with all of that. This shoulder thing, yeah, it's going to be great. But my body is still going to get older and it's still going to give out and it's still going to die. And that's kind of a bigger problem. And this patience, if I just woke up and I was a more patient dad, that'd be great. 
But I've got control issues in my heart and in my mind that will still exist that are responsible for that. And if that's not treated, it's just going to manifest in some other way. That's a bigger problem. And this drama and my extended family, yeah, if everybody got along, that'd be fantastic. But you know what? The selfish tendencies responsible for these divisions are still going to exist. And it's still going to manifest in some other destructive way. There is renewal that needs to happen. This is the bigger problem. The problem is not the symptoms that we have to deal with in life. The problem is this disease and this corruption that we call sin. This is what needs fixed for us to truly experience the goodness we long for and we yearn for. And the good news is that's exactly what God is working to cure. We read about it in this doctrine of the new creation. We read about it in this doctrine of the, of the resurrection. We have this confidence that he's working on this. And I'm just to emphasize that this truly is the greater work worth hoping for and depending upon. I want to look at that illustration of marriage that Jesus gave us. Because marriage is, when it's good, is great. But Jesus said there's not going to be any marriage at the resurrection. Now, depending on your last marital spat and how intense it was, you might hear that and go, I can live with that. That sounds pretty good, actually. But probably most of us, we hear that and go, I'm not real sure that sounds good because we love our spouses and we want to be with them. We can't imagine an eternity without them. Maybe we long to be reunited with a departed spouse and that thought there will be no marriage in this new world that God is making. Maybe we're not sure we even want that kind of eternity. And it's that fear, that attitude, it's kind of hitting on what I mentioned earlier. Sometimes we really underestimate the power of God and the goodness of his work. Marriage is great when it's great. In fact, it could be the greatest relationship between people on planet Earth. Because there is an intimacy, there is a, a knowing and being known that's unlike anything else. There is a friendship and a connection that is unlike anything else. There is a security of knowing that you can love somebody, that you can be yourself, flaws and all, and you're not going to be rejected, and you're not going to be pushed aside, you're not going to be overlooked, you're going to be loved. There is an amazing connection that happens with somebody like that. And the thought that that's not going to exist in eternity, maybe that's fearful. But let's talk about this in terms of donuts for a second. I think about a lot of things, a shocking number of things in terms of donuts, it turns out. I love Krispy Kreme donuts. If you don't love Krispy Kreme donuts, you might expect me to say, that's okay, we all have opinions. But I'm here to tell you the truth. You're wrong and you need to repent, right? Like, they're good. For a long time, though, I've, I've never lived near a Krispy Kreme store. So for a long time, my only experience with Krispy Kreme donuts was like the fundraisers that people do. Or like you pre-order and then they get them from a store and ship them in. So like they're almost a day old by that point. And they're still really good, right? But that was my only experience of these, these little donuts. But one day, I was driving, and I passed an actual Krispy Kreme store. And that hot and fresh sign was on. Y'all, that was one of the most memorable days of my life. <laughs> because you go in, and you eat this donut, and it's, it's everything my day-old donut was turned up to 11. Like it was soft and it was sweet and it was delicious. It like melts in your mouth. It was an incredible taste. And here's the best part. It wasn't limited to just that one donut. It was the next one 
and the next one, and the next one, and every one of those dozen donuts that I ate that day, yes, and I will make no apologies for that, every one of those dozen donuts was incredible. It was like my day-old donut experience, but amped up to 11. What in the world has that got to do with eternity, right? Marriage is phenomenal. When it's great, it's great. But in our analogy, guys, it is the day-old donut. What God is producing and what God is making is everything that relationship can be amped up to 11. And here's the best part. It's not limited to your relationship with one person. Take all sexual overtones out of this. We're not even talking about that. That connection that you can have with somebody, a friendship that you can have with somebody, it's not just your spouse. It's with your neighbor. It's with that random person you pass on the street as you go to your job in eternity, whatever that may be. Our interactions with people will be perfected because sin is gone. And that corruption that causes us to fear and to be suspicious and to keep our distance, that, that tendency within us to judge to look at somebody through the lens, a, a compromised lens, may cause us to make assumptions, that, that tendency to be envious or jealous, that tendency within us to be insecure or fearful, all of the things that keep us separated and distant from one another are healed. Can you imagine what life might be like if the people you come into contact with every day, those interactions are just built with love and trust and acceptance, with generosity and joy, with openness and acceptance, unfettered. How great will that be? That's what Jesus is getting at. Our relationships will not be deterred by sin. This world will not be deterred by the corruption and the disease of sin. That's what he's building. That's what he's creating and what he's working on. That's what our hope is in. That kind of a day that God is bringing about. That's what all this business about marriage at the resurrection is. And why it won't exist. We won't need it. Because we will finally just be loving and loved by everybody. I don't know about you. That sounds pretty good. And it would be great, you know, if, if my broken and strained relationships today could be fixed. I'd love that. But I want that more. I want the world that God is making. And that's our comfort and that's our hope in the messes of life today. So here's what I would leave you with. Because this is a potentially messy season, right? Christmas comes with a lot of highs, but as I illustrated earlier, there's a lot of messy Christmases too for different reasons. Or maybe it doesn't have anything to do with Christmas. Maybe you're just in a season right now where you're just crying out to God to fix it. I challenge each of us to put our confidence not in a temporary solution, but in the greater work that God is doing. And he is at work, healing us, even now, inwardly, through the power of Jesus. And I would leave us again with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. Throw that back up there. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. This new creation, this world God is creating and building and doing, it's not something we're waiting on. It's something we are becoming. Now. That's us.
So I would encourage you, let go of the old. The old ways that sin tempts us to live and teaches us to think and to feel and to relate with others, let it go. And embrace this new way of life. This way that just yields to God's word, to his instruction, to his ways. That extends grace when our world tells us not to extend grace. That extends love when the world says, you have every right to be angry. It extends generosity and charity when the world says, you've got to get yours and look out for you. Embrace this new way of life because this is what God is accomplishing in us even now. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have because of the gospel. It's not hope in temporary fixes or temporary relief. It is hope for a cure, and we praise you for that, and we long for that. We see the evidences of sin and its corruption all around our world.